Welcome to Two Cents FC. I'm your host, Amobi, back again with my guy, L. Each week, we'll be discussing topics from around the soccer world and giving you our unfiltered thoughts and opinions. This week, we're joined by Portland's Timbers forward, Jeremy Ibobisi, uh, one of my good guys, one of the good guys in the game. I'm so happy to have him on. Uh, fun fact, uh, when he first got to Portland, I was the first guy to give him dinner, so he owes me now that he's big time. <laughs> uh, but let me not digress. Uh, this week, we'll be discussing uh, talking Black pay- players for change, their initiatives for 2021, and we're also going to be saluting Coach Lincoln Phillips in this week's Black Soccer History. And obviously, of course, we're going to be catching up with Jeremy. So, Jeremy, how are you doing today? Man, I'm good. It's finally, it's an honor to finally be invited to Two Cents. I've been seeing the snippets all over Instagram and <laughs> just been waiting for my chance, you know? thought Omobi forgot about me. Yeah, man, uh, pleasure man. to have you, man. Yeah, uh, thanks for taking the time. We know you're doing a lot of things. Um, before we get into the thing, like we get into the interview, when are you going to pay me back for dinner? I just need to know. Uh, I don't know. I'm still t- getting tips from your small chops Insta story. So once I got it refined, you know, I'm going I'm to make you something nice. I still remember that dinner that one night. So okay. can't be can't be giving you a bad dinner, you know? I, I respect pay that. up to a good level. Okay, I respect that. So first question we ask everybody, when did you fall in love with soccer? Yeah, I think as a kid, like four or five years old, I had an older brother who was six years older than me and he was already playing. My dad being from Cameroon, he played when he was in high school. So it was just like the family sport. Even my mom, like she would always be around us when we were playing. And it just felt so natural to be with the ball, uh, watching my brother's games. I wouldn't even watch half the time. I'd just be running around with my ball. Um, so the the love was felt mutual and it just grew as I got older and as I got better. No, I respect that. So take it back a little bit because you know you talked about your your dad's from Cameroon you were born in Paris you know a lot of the guys used to call you Mr. United Nations so talk about your upbringing you know what brought you to the east coast and obviously to where you are now yeah uh kind of a long story but ultimately my parents ended up in France uh, and that's where they had my brother and I and from there they moved up to DC so my dad could work for the World Bank and we resided in Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb, and slowly but surely we started getting more and more uh, integrated into society and kind of finding our niche, you know, as a immigrant family in in this country and in this melting pot that was Washington D.C. But it was a it was a unique experience, right? Both my parents being from different countries and having one culture at home, and then having to really assimilate into uh, the American culture and the different cultures kind of joining into that. Uh, that landscape. So I started out at the French school, which was a private school, just so that I could keep working on my French and that I could, it was kind of a continuation from the way my brother grew up and the way I would have grown up if we had stayed in France. And then eventually I transitioned to the American public school system in second grade. And that was, that was a culture shock. Like I spoke English, but I just felt like an outsider, one being black in a not very black uh, classroom environment, but also just having a French as my first language and being around natural English speakers, it, it was definitely a little bit uncomfortable just getting really up to speed linguistically. No, I can only imagine. So how did that translate, you know, playing soccer? Like, I feel like, you know, English not being your first language, uh, as you talked about trying to, you know, make that transition. Talk about how soccer either helped or, you know, maybe hurt your transition. I mean, soccer... I don't know, soccer didn't really play a huge role in my transition. It 
at recess, I mean, at the French school, at the American school, we all played soccer. So I guess from that and from the social aspect of things, being good at a sport at a young age kind of made me fit in with the kind of crowd that, you know, I was looking to be a part of. Uh, but I feel like my soccer experience was so different everywhere I went, right? Whether I was playing at recess at the French school, recess uh, at, the, at my public school, in the neighborhood when I was younger and, you know, into travel soccer. It, and then from there, even going into college, but now I'm fast forwarding, it's just such a different landscape. You know, the different personalities, the good and the bad, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes the entitlement, the exclusivity that people try to feign to maybe not make you feel super welcome in a sport that is such an international sport and that should be welcoming to everyone. So it, it, it went both ways, really. So when, when did you play, uh, when did you like switch over from like school soccer to like club? Man, I was lucky. I, I always think reminisce on this with my brother and, you know, with our with our crew from from back in Bethesda, where he went to he went from kind of rec soccer to yeah. Bethesda Soccer Club at 13. And okay. I went at the same time as him. So I was seven. So really, I had six years advanced on formal soccer education relative to him. And that's kind of why I think I am where I'm at right now and where, you know, his career ended up going. He made a lot out of it and ended up going D3 with D1 offers as well. But I I went to Bethesda at seven years old. And from then it was a natural progression. Again, I played up. I played up. So I was with the U9s as a seven-year-old and kind of just carried on with that. But it was good because I was physically a little bit more mature than some of the guys my age. So playing up a year allowed me to really focus on uh, not using my physicality as an advantage. I love that. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's a thing from Maryland. You guys claim you guys have the best soccer region uh, all over the state. So talk about that. I'm giving, you, I'm giving you your chance to, you know, brag for you guys yourselves because we had scams on the show earlier. He started naming you, you know, obviously Joe Jow, Lester, you know, Rodney, all the boys from, you know, the DMV Maryland area. Um, so I'm giving you your chance and then I'm going to I'm going to have to do my book uh, rebuttal. <laughs> I mean, is there another community city metropolitan area that can really compete with the DMV like you know between Baltimore DC like there's okay, just so we're, we're counting Baltimore in this group I mean I got to okay I, got to, I, I just know. need to know so I can have a, a better argument <laughs> oh no what are you gonna do spread out to LA or something <laughs> <laughs> no I'm not claiming Sacramento I'm saying LA Jersey you got Dallas there's so many different regions but DMV Maryland does have a strong hotbed yeah we do I mean across all age groups, you know, you're looking at guys like Joe, guys like Colin Martin, guys like Gideon Zalalem, you know, spread out through like this, then you even had like Gooch back in the day and Rodney Wallace, as you mentioned. So every age group seems to churn out at least one or two top quality players. And one way or another, we all find our way to each other in the off season, especially as we get older, as we are able to drive, as we're more mobile and pickups get intense, man. I remember three, three, four years ago, going to like my first pickup with like a bunch of people. And I was trying to play, you know, when you're out in the field, you got to play. And my boy was like, yo, you better chill out. Like you don't want to get hurt out here. But <laughs> I was just so caught up in the game and it, it's fun when you got a competitive level. But, you know, one of these days when, when our careers are all done, we got to get a, we got to get a DMV squad against, uh, you know, the Philly kids think they got some, I don't know, Zarek always be saying that, that <laughs> Philly's got some. Yeah, and fine. then, I don't know, California, if you guys want to take your whole state, you guys can do that too. But 
it won't, no, we'll it won't it, match we'll up. up. We'll break it up. It still weeks. won't match up. Oh, we definitely need to do something like that. You know, they got a big three league. We got to do something like that. Five aside for soccer. <laughs> Hopefully two cents sports can, you know, be involved with that. But talk about, talk about your team specifically, because, you know, your team is famous. You guys have a great coach. Uh, you have a great group of talent that I don't know. I want to say like 60% of the players from your first club team went are ultimately made it to the pro level. Yeah, I don't have the, I don't know the number exactly, but my team was, it was unique, right? Because we had Bethesda, which was kind of a local team where I was, where I grew up. And then there was Tacoma Park, which was a team 20 minutes away, 15 minutes away. And we were always rivals playing against each other, like really tight games, as tight of a rivalry as you can have at seven, eight, nine years old. And then slowly but surely, you know, playing against each other so much, having a coach who was connected with the community those teams started to merge so that by the time we were 13, we created only Rangers and slowly, but surely different guys started joining back in at different moments, right? Not everyone left their club team at the same time for the merger, but we found our way to each other. And from then it was about competing with the Academy system, knowing that the Academy system was taking over. We were seeing homegrown signing left and right. And the allure was real, right? We had good players, players probably who were ready to sign homegrown at some point but we had to find a way to keep ourselves all united and together and really believing in our environment being as good as anyone else's. So you look at our team, we, we had you know, Chase Gasper, Carter Manley, who was in the league for a while. We had Gideon Zalalem. You know, we had at least three or four other guys who got drafted in me, or got drafted in 2017, 18 and 19. And they've had careers either in USL or overseas. So you look at, a club team from not a huge city in Maryland that was able to consistently compete against the academy teams and churn out pro talent at a time when even some of those MLS teams weren't creating successful homegrowns or homegrowns that they actually gave space to grow and fulfill their potential. So by the time we were 18, you know, our coach had done such a good, good job of keeping our standards high, but we found an opportunity to merge into an academy team so that we could take our unique environment and test it with the best. So we got to the Academy League, finished, I think, 30 and three, maybe on the year, losing Ooh, games yeah. to PDA, PDA, FC Dallas, and one other team. And then we ended up, oh, and then PDA again in the national final, which was a heartbreak. But Wait, who was on PDA during that team? How did you go? My guy, Brian White. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a tough one going into Duke, having lost the national final two weeks <laughs> before because he was my teammate at Duke as well. But, uh, yeah, we had a unique team. And it, it, was, it was special how we were able to keep, you know, the core group together through all those years when, you know, Baltimore Bays were trying to recruit me. Like, DC United were trying to recruit other guys, Potomac Academy. All these teams wanted us. All these teams kept making promises. Okay, we'll take, you know, half your team over to our academy and, like, We'll find a space for your coach as well, but we can't guarantee everyone. We're like, no, we're going to stick together. So it's all of us or none of us. And we ended up scrimmaging the academies all those years as well, all the local ones, and we would beat them. So they knew that you know, we were doing something right, and they wanted it on that as well. No, that's amazing. And I think it's a great story, you know, for the coaches and, you know, parents of, you know, athletes that listen to our podcast. It's like, if you're in a good environment with a good coach and other players that, you know, iron sharpens iron. And, you know, for you guys to keep that contingent, um, you guys are all pushing each other. And it's not exactly. just one off here, one off there. It's like, no, we're going to come together. We're going to push each other. We're going to get in this great learning environment. And, um, 
you guys ultimately developed and all reached your goal. So that's, that's amazing. And I got to give a quick shout out to Matt Pilkington, who was our coach all these time. You know, he's gone on to NYCFC's U19 since we had graduated and gone to college. And I think he's won two national championships with them, been a part of the development of guys like Gio Reyna, guys like Joe Scali, James Sands, et cetera. So it, his body of work and what he did with our team immediately translated into what he would bring to New York City's team. And I just remember in practice, like talking about keeping the standard high, there were days where, man, as kids, like, you know, you just show up, you got so much going on in life, you show up to the field and maybe your standard is not as high as you like it. And he would let you know immediately, but in a way as well that, that you didn't just shut down immediately. Uh, it, it was in a way that was really motivating to be better. Like, even if sometimes things got out of hand or, you know, we just started running because we weren't keeping up the, the standard of play that we wanted, you know, we understood that ultimately it was on us and we had to show up to training every day or risk, you know, the balls being packed up and us not being able to train. So it, it's, uh, I'm glad I went through that as a, as a child. And I think we're all better for it as professionals, the guys who went on and, you know, for the guys who only made it to D1, I think they had really good careers as well. And the common theme once we got to college was, man, like we had something special in academy and club, even if we didn't always realize it at that time, it was something real special being motivated and talented as we were. No, that's what it's all about. And it's not just on the field too, it's off the field. You know, a great coach will help you develop in so many different ways. And, you know, one way that you've always, you know, put on a high, um, a high horse is your education. You know, so talk about that because like you're in a perfect situation. You have European citizenship, I don't, I don't, I don't, I would actually, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I'm going to hold that one close to the chest, but go ahead. Okay. okay. So I'm like, from the outside looking in, like when we played, I'm like, why are you even in the league? You like, you're born in Paris, uh, you top level talent, um, but you are always valued education. I know that came from your parents. So talk about the decision to go to Duke when I'm sure you had plenty of options to do other things. Man, if I could take you back to the first time. So we talked about why I didn't go to Europe. I was actually, I tried with Fulham when I was 15, 16, had a really good trial. They were really intent on bringing me over, contract and everything being negotiated, sorted out. And, you know, the UK and different work permit laws with different age groups and minors made that real challenging. So ultimately it fell through. But I remember when I first came back from that first trial where I think I scored eight goals in five games with Fulham's U16s against you know, non-league teams to, to Premier League academies. I came back and I told my dad, I want to go. Like, they said they want me. Uh-huh. I, I want to go. Yeah. And he said, he started laughing. <laughs> but yeah. he was like, you're going to college, son. Yeah. <laughs> and that, so yeah, speaking to the education first on, on that side of things. And then he, I came back up for another trial, just to like confirm what I had done in the previous yeah. one. And this time my dad had come out with me to see what was what it was about they wanted to give him the chance to to really see their facility and feel comfortable sending me there so after when he came up we played Chelsea's youth team and again I I happened to score two goals that game and he was so impressed just seeing the types of players that I was playing against and how high the level was and yeah I thought I had high standards coming into those trials but seeing the way English academies were operating just brought a whole new dynamic so when he saw that, the facilities, the organization of the coaching staffs and the different support systems, he was like, you know what, like, if this is what you want, you know, you know, I love soccer and 
as long as you work hard and really put your mind to it because there's no turning back once you make that decision like we can set you up to have as many options as possible on the education side and on the athletic side once you go to England but you're not going there to study you're going there to play so while you need to excel academically you need to put everything else into the sport so it was nice to see him come around so quickly and and from there that's kind of we maintained the education side of things being super important. I mean, that was drilled in as a kid, as a child, like hard work, et cetera. Like, you know, you got to work twice as hard. And, but as I got older, he started to understand that my dream and my future was as a professional for as long as I can make it work. So it was about creating pathways to come back and study, which is how I got to Duke. And one of the first things that they told me when I was being recruited was you get in first semester, you can always come back. And, you know, you got a brand like Duke. I know you went to UCLA. These schools really attract people academically. So the combination of being able to come back, being able to play in the ACC and being able to study, you know, as rigorous of a curriculum as, as any other school in the country, it was, it was pretty much a no-brainer, as well as the distance from home, a four-hour drive so my mom and dad could come up, you know, as often as they would like. But I would also have some separation from maybe some of the distractions that I might have had if I'd gone to Maryland, for example, which was another option. No, that's a great point that you br- you brought up when it comes to school. Like, you know, get in first and then that could last a lifetime. You know, instead of like whether, I mean, you did have the opportunity to go pro, you decided to go to school, but you wouldn't be able, it would be a lot harder to go to Duke, um, you know, just off, off the whim. So, <laughs> it would be hard. <laughs> yeah, so being able to at least, you know, play a season there, and then no matter when you left, now you always have that to your name. And then you have the whole rest of your life to go pro. You know, I see it on both sides. My dad did the same thing. I, I was able to go on trial uh, my senior year of high school. And he was like, yeah, that was fun, but you still <laughs> cool. Like, <laughs> I don't care. So to hear your story was cool. So talk about that Duke-UNC rivalry that you guys always love to brag about. <laughs> Who's you guys? <laughs> nah. It- Anyone from... UNC. <laughs> That's true. I'm not even going to lie. We're obnoxious about it. It's like the one thing that Duke and UNC agree on. They find the, they, we find the pettiest things to argue about that really don't mean anything. And mm-hmm. they just make conversations so awkward. I remember, you know, a lot of people from my neighborhood end up going to UNC and they're always trying to one up Duke. And I'm like, it's not that deep. Like, it's really not that deep. <laughs> But on the field, it was it was cool, right? Like we weren't getting a lot of fans throughout the year or throughout the early part of the season. Probably looking at anywhere from 500 to 2,000 if we're if we were lucky. And then all of a sudden, we get to a Friday night game against UNC at Coskin and in Durham, and it was sold out. And UNC had a, a lot of traveling supporters as well. At the time, they were number one in the country. We were unranked, and we came back. <laughs> we came back from one zero down to beat them. In, in pretty you know unique and iconic at the time fashion. And that's really when I felt what it was like to be A, a Duke student athlete and B, you know, in the ACC. Like that, the back and forth nature of that game, the emotion after the fact, I mean, you know what happens when, when you win a game like that in college. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a good team bonding experience to say the <laughs> least after, after the fact. Um, so, and, and I mean, it, transcends every sport so when we get to basketball I mean seeing how the campus kind of gets behind everything and and the team 
it's it's pretty special. We got Kville, so people big people start camping out for the Duke UNC game six weeks at least six weeks before the game. Are you serious? <laughs> Come on now, it's unbelievable. Yeah, they they just they set up a tent. There's rules. There's line monitors. There's everything. And you got to have at least a 30 year party in the tent at all times so that other people can go to class. But, you know, it'll start raining. Sometimes it'll start snowing. And unless the line monitors kind of give you an exemption, you kind of just stuck there. So although it was the spring, we didn't really take part in that. And then three or four days before the game, they start the walk up line where you basically just sleep in line. Same rules, but you just don't have a tent. So you're talking about a thousand or so kids just camping lining up you know tailgating for weeks <laughs> coming into the game and it, it's special it's a community feel that's crazy. crazy so portland timbers uh <laughs> sleeping camping out that was nothing because you've already seen it you already <laughs> i seen i'll walk by because you walk by kville from like main campus to the athletic centers and they are just out there freezing cold <laughs> They start setting up their tents as soon as we get back from winter break. And I'm just like, that's, that is diehard fanship right there. Like that is uh, every now and then the basketball team comes out and like gives them something, you know, something yeah. to acknowledge their presence and reward them for, for their perseverance. Cause that it's, I'm telling you, it's not easy. Like you got to go to class, you got to do homework and then you got to be like in your tent. Like, would you, would either you do that? I don't know. Who got the secret? Who got the uh, family secret? No, I did it. I did it once, like just for one night for the walk up line for Notre Dame. We were ranked fifth and they were ranked third. So I'm like, it's going to be a big game. I showed up at three in the morning and the line was already long as hell. And I was like, am I going to get into the game? But I I just stuck it out three in the morning, fell asleep at like four or five, woke up at noon for a one o'clock game, I think. And it was an experience. It was a great game, but that was about as much as I needed to do. (laughs) That's cool, man. So Obviously, the ACC's, you know, probably voted as the strongest conference from a college soccer standpoint. You know, you play for a strong team in Duke. Uh, what's one thing, you know, college student athletes, soccer players specifically, are still getting recruited? Still, there's a still pathway for college soccer. What's one way you would fix college soccer or like recommend for college soccer players to do from a development standpoint to make it to the next level? And there, I, I mean, I, I obviously went through the college uh, pathway and while I recognize that I think the best way to reach the highest ceiling is to go professional at the youngest age possible in the right environment. You can't just go in the yeah. environment present to you just because that's what's right in front of you. You got to really go out so and that's, find. That's why, that's why you're avoiding DC Academy all those years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could, we could get in the conversation about that too, but uh, no, just, the. I'm joke, sorry. The, nah, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that too. But I would start with extending the season. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing right now with COVID, unfortunately, but also as a unique opportunity for college soccer is that you it is possible to play in the spring as well as the fall. So mm-hmm. you have to extend the season. These this whole two games a week thing, where you're missing so much so many classes that you're overwhelmed coming into training every day, trying to find a way to study and stay up all night at, a, at schools where you're gonna have heavy academic loads because you're not there to take it lightly and to skirt by. No. You need to be able to extend the season for the academic health of a student and for their athletic health, right? And then you play two games a week 
your body doesn't really recover. So you're just kind of in auto drive, hoping that you don't get hurt. But in the event that you do get hurt, you get one hamstring strain, you miss three weeks, you miss like a third of the season right there because it's so condensed. So, and then on the flip side, while you're playing so many games, you're really not practicing. So you're not developing and you're not being able to work on the individual aspects and the tactical aspects that might improve you as a player. You're always focused on scouting the next team and playing. Like if in ACC, you play Tuesday, Friday. So you play a game Tuesday, recovery Wednesday, then Thursday, you're already scouting and, and running an yeah. 11 v 11 for the Friday game. Again, then recover Sunday or recover Saturday, then start training again Sunday. But you got Sunday, Monday to prepare for a Tuesday game. So again, you get that extra luxury time to prepare for that game. There's no working on the team. It's always reactionary plan for the next step. So you got to extend the season. That That's my biggest thing right there. And then I understand that the amount of subbing allows for a lot of players to get chances to play, but it's, it's not like the rest of the world. <laughs> like, you're going from subbing, like I see teams and this isn't their fault because this, you have to play to the system yeah. and find ways to be the most efficient given the set of rules. But you find teams at minute 25 doing a line change with their Bro, front six. Don't even get <laughs> started on that. And I'm just like, there is no rhythm in this game. I remember being a, a student athlete my freshman, sophomore year, especially my sophomore year as I started getting more comfortable in 20, 25 minutes into the game where I'm starting to feel good, but maybe it still looks like I'm floating around finding the game. And by the time I feel good, I'm out. And I'm, yeah. and I'm looking left and right. And I'm like, we were just starting to get our, a foot on the game, but now we're bringing on six new guys, four to six new guys so that they can run and press and make the game chaotic again. Yeah. So uh, this, the subbing has got to go. Like if you're playing with three to five subs over 90 minute games in Academy, why are we going to take a step back and make up some completely different rules for older, older kids? Right. So I think those go hand in hand as well. You extend the season so you don't have as many games so you can play longer minutes as well without as much fear of injury. Well, I agree with both those. Yeah. First step, first and foremost, that sub thing needs to go. <laughs> and it's like the spring season, like instead of playing like, you know, preseason games with you know usually it would be like mls teams or call uh, other colleges just make it into a season i think you guys could definitely do something with that so uh let's talk about your transition you well, know? No, sorry. Well, the spring season don't get me started about the spring season <laughs> oh you got you're, a lot to play here we go you're trying to you are actively seeking the best players in this country trying to convince them that signing a homegrown deal isn't beneficial to their career saying that you have the unique pathway for them to further mold their game, right? You're not going to be given the patience in the professional environment. You need to be in a collegiate environment where we can be hands-on and really take your game to the next level. The spring is a wasted season. And you're not playing competitive games. You're only allowed to train two hours a week for the first six weeks, unless you're circumventing the rules in a way that, you know, is unleveling the playing field. And the fact that it's not an official season means that the guys who aren't there necessarily to go pro feel the license and the liberty to explore everything college has to offer. And they can do that in the span of a regular season too, but I don't think that they would take that added liberty of not being held accountable on an actual game to express themselves in that regard. 
So if we're talking about having a concurrent system parallel that's developing professional players, the spring season's got to be reformed. That's why I say 10-month season. There's already a lot of college coaches behind it. Coronavirus, for everything bad that's happened in this world, has also shown that soccer can play in the spring. So. Yeah. I'll, I'll, hey, yo, you might have to be on the NCAA board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with that being said, you know, you, you saw that and you, you didn't stay in college for too long. You ended up going pro to good old Portland Timbers. Talk about, you know, that experience and, you know, ultimately, you know, coming in, you know, I like to consider you a veteran freshman. You know, you're a young guy, but, you know, well mature beyond your years. You got in a lot of uh, locker room debates because you're, you're real smart. I uh, used to tell you, I was like, yo, you might want to just sit this one out, but you, <laughs> you, <hold it> out. <laughs> you, did, you did tell me that. I, uh, before I get into the transition, I remember one day, I'm not going to name any names, but it was me and you for sure. And a few other people in the locker room and someone was saying some stuff and it was problematic. And you kind of looked at me like, you don't want to do this. Like you have the ability to argue with this person, but you're not going to get anywhere. And we were there for like two hours after training. <laughs> the kit men had had the time to do loads of laundry and hang them up before we had left. That's how long we were sitting there. I don't know if you remember that day. I do remember that. <laughs> uh, but oh. the transition was the transition was pretty smooth once I once I had gotten through the bump of signing before my what would have been my junior season, having to play USL for six weeks, then having to train with two different teams and always searching for that next environment to continue playing, having chosen such an unconventional route. Getting to Portland, I mean, I was surrounded with veterans who were really supportive. I'd always heard, you're going to get into a locker room and you know, you're going to have to be quiet. Everyone's going to hate you. You're going to have to earn everyone's respect. And to some degree, there's some truth to every one of those things. But when you got to Portland, it was very much, if you didn't try to overstep where you, if you didn't try to overstep on veterans and people who have had who had had a lot of success in the league then they would really welcome you in and and make sure that you worked hard and stayed humble but help you get to the level that they felt that you could get to so even our I remember showing up to Tucson I was in between you and Zarek who ended up being two of my closest guys in my rookie season really looking after me but you guys just always had the tea always had something to say always <laughs> always giving me the unfiltered truth about you know, being a rookie, being drafted, trying to find playing time, trying to work and earn that playing time. You know, when when things got hard or when things were going well, you guys are always in my ear. So I appreciated that, especially in preseason. And it, the first year was tough. Just trying to impose myself in a locker room of successful, experienced veterans, but some opportunities presented themselves, you know, Look at Vancouver, where we had 13 guys, 13 field players, 12 field players, I think, available with Gold Cup injuries, suspensions. And that got me my first start. It went really well. So I became a, a bigger part of the team moving forward after that. And, and then another step back in 2018, where, you know, you get a new coach, a couple of new guys come in, and it's like you're starting over, starting from scratch. I thought I had a good preseason, but then I started the season with T2, was doing pretty well at one point hit a rough patch with t2 really fell off wasn't even making the starting 11 with t2 feeling really frustrated uh, blaming everyone myself included but uh 
being really critical of everything and everyone around me as well. And then ultimately a whirlwind of events as well as a, a, a return to really good form put me in line to start against Colorado in September of my second season. And I took it on. I think the guys, again, the guys on the field at the time were really happy for me to be getting onto the field. They had seen the work that I've been putting in. And as long as I was there to work for them, they would put me in situations to, to be successful. Like when I play with a guy like Blanco or a guy like Valeri, they're always saying, just stand there because I will get you the ball there and then you will score because you can score goals. And, and that was definitely my relationship early on where it was just finding a way to compliment the guys already on the field, being someone that they felt comfortable playing with and trying to find success in that regard. So getting to MLS Cup at the end of the year, I, I won the starting spot, some ups and downs, some, some tough performances. I, especially I remember Kansas City away. We had tied 0-0 at home in the Western Conference Final. We show up away. And it, I never played there. It was the, one of the most intimidating atmospheres. Like their little light show at the beginning of the game, the mm -hmm. lights, like the face, like everything. It just, it just felt like they were so ready to win that game. First 15 minutes, just full press, like mm -hmm. under, like I'm getting my pocket picked by Ike. Like I'm like, oh man, it's going to be a long game. 45 minutes into the game, I think we're only down 1-0. And we get into the locker room and everyone's like, we are lucky to be, <laughs> to still be in this game. I think it was my worst half as a professional ever. And I just stared at myself in the mirror, like, am I, am I built for this or not? And second 45, I mean, it was night and day difference. We all came out, showed out, like did our jobs, did the simple things right, but made it real hard for Kansas. And, you know, thankfully Blanco bailed us out with a banger that I think will go down in MLS history. I mean, I see it every year. And, and I mean, again, getting to MLS Cup, you know, some bumps in that game for sure, but learning experiences that I will take into 2019 and just continue to grow. It's it's about never being too happy with with where I'm at, continuing to learn from the old guys and the new guys coming into the to the environment. So it's been it's been a ride full of ups and downs, full of contentious, but ultimately familial relationships that have been, that have been strengthened over the years. No, I'm glad that you were, you know, open and transparent because a lot of people just see like, you know, Jeremy's, you know, national team forward now, you know, star player for Portland, but they don't see those, you know, those, those grind years. And I tell like a lot of athletes, especially, you know, soccer players, there's always going to be those moments, you know, in that, that first year when it was Vancouver away. I remember that, uh, you know, having to, that, like, that was like, all right, I'm here moment. And it wasn't like you, you never had, the ability it was just you never had the opportunity to showcase it so you had your chance and you did it and then obviously you said 2018 you know took it took a little bit to get back to that point but you know you were always doing the work you know after practice you would take free kicks and I'm like yo this guy don't know we have Valeri and Blanco and like you're not getting on free kicks my time so but it was that mentality of like when I do get that free kick I'm gonna be ready when I do get that near post run I'm gonna make it because this is the stuff that I've been doing after practice every day. And it's not just, you know, day before the game. So coach can see it's nah, like Monday, yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, off days early. And this is what he was doing this as a rookie. And it's not because, oh, I'm not playing that I'm going to do it. It's even when you were playing, I'm going to continue to do it. So I think a lot of people don't see that. They just see uh, he's a star forward. He had it easy. He's always been a top prospect, but nah. Um, the work you put in, it's, it's commendable. And I, I just want people to, to know that. I think it's gotten 
like to the top prospect comment, man, it's, I I would have, I would argue against that. It's, it's been so up and down all these years, man. I still remember that first U13 national team camp and with a hundred people, you were probably, you probably had the same one. They stopped doing those big ones, but. Was yours in Boston? Do they do yours in Boston too? I think ours was in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't remember where it was, but 120 people. And I'm like, I need to be in that team that goes to Disney. And I thought I deserved to be there, but I was cut, like cut so quickly, like everyone saying I wasn't good enough. And it just felt like that was the consistent theme in my youth career. I would be putting up numbers in any league. I was in national league, regional, region one league, you know, eventually academy league. But it was always like, he's not good enough for the national team. And that just kind of kept the fire burning. Right. And as we get into my rookie season and not playing, you know, I would be lining up free kicks, but I would also just be dribbling and taking shot like random shots from random spaces, just trying to do something to make myself better. And through reflection with different members of the coaching staff and some of the different players, the biggest change from my rookie season, my sophomore season, uh, especially adding in one of our assistant coaches, Miles Joseph, who's been really helpful in the individual development side of things, was really finding a way to train the things that are actually going to be consistent parts of my game. So is it going to be consistent for me to get the ball 30 yards out, dribble through like random spaces and take shots? Maybe once or twice, maybe once a game, once every other game, and who knows how my career develops it might become more frequent. But what would be consistent was near post runs, far post runs, like movement in the box. And so second season, third season, that's what it was all about. It was about recreating game scenarios with the coaching staff, using mannequins, adding a passive defender every now and then so that I was sharper in those moments in the game. And that really paid off. I remember my second start as a, as a second year player, I had a goal against Salt Lake where it was a back post run off the shoulder of a defender for, from across. And I didn't see the ball the whole way. But as soon as I saw it at the last second, I knew just because I'd been in that experience so many times in training that that's how it would go. And that just gave me the validation I needed to continue, A, trusting my coaches to implement the right individualized training program, but also for me to continue on that path. So I would just encourage any young player listening to trust trust the people around them you know, who have played at the highest level or at the level that you're currently at and, and really buy into what they what they see in you and what they feel you need to improve on because the work gets done in training but it also gets done after training it gets done an hour before training when you're coming in getting treatment doing like rolling your body out getting the core right to make sure your muscles are tight like it gets done after training when you're on the field getting those extra reps in recovering the right way you know whatever each individual person and their routine is that that's that's what it's about hoping that your mind and body are right for that one opportunity whenever it does come. Cause unfortunately, depending on who you are, that might be the only chance that you get. No, I love that. You said that when it comes to game, like training, because, and this is a quick rant for the parents that are paying you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars to these trainers and you're not doing game, like scenario training, you're doing step overs and a bunch of cones drills and stuff like that. You're not going to do that in the game. So game-specific training to make you better in the games, I think that's very important. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you might be copying my uh, my training programs. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not your training 
So talk about that because, you know, L's an Atlanta fan. He's not going to tell you because he, he doesn't want to bring up bad memories. But what was it like playing in that final? You know, that that stadium just is seems amazing. It it was surreal. Like, whatever people saw and whatever people felt in the atmosphere, that's what we felt on the field. For – especially when I first walked out, right, for the anthem and the processions, I was like, damn, like, this – this is legit. Like the lights were beaming. Like, yeah. and you just knew that stadium was filled with 70 plus thousand people. Eventually the game starts and you take a couple of touches, you get settled into the game and you start to feel like, all right, you know, you're, you're back in, in an empty, in an empty stadium. And then for me, you know, when Parker's comes around, makes that tackle, it just so happens to fall perfectly to Joseph Martinez one-on-one -on -one with our goalie and they score. I'm just like, Oh my God, every, it's like, I heard every single voice in that stadium in my ear, like every individual voice, every individual cheer, I felt like all that weight had just encompassed me. And that's kind of part of being a young player and maybe not having the mental resilience at that time, having not been in such high stakes games uh, to be able to put that behind me immediately. And I just remember like, almost like getting down on one knee and just like, processing everything that I was hearing, seeing, feeling. I remember seeing the bench, the guys on the bench, and they were like, get up, just get up, like, keep going. You're going to be all right. But I, I just didn't even believe it. I was like, this is 1-0. This is a team that's been hot in form. They've got some of the best players in the league. They've been dominating everyone. We got no chance. Like, that was, for a split second, that was my mentality. Then you get started playing again, and, and you're like, all right, you know, it's, it's going to get better. Just, like, find comfort again. You, you played a fine first five, ten minutes. Don't let that define you. Then I get across from Seba, I think just before the half, five, 10 minutes before the half and a header from inside the six. My momentum's not perfect. And I had the ball in a decent spot in goal, but in a savable spot too. So Guzan makes a good save. And that's like, damn, that was your moment to redeem yourself, but you were still caught up on your first mistake. So you didn't have time to get your feet right, get that momentum going in the right direction so that you could get more power on the header and ultimately what ended up be, what was an average to like above average attempt was not made you know an, an instant goal which i would expect out of myself in that situation so you you capture those two moments and i just went into a shell like i remember just being uh, it, it's tough to admit but i had also grown a lot from that moment so i'm okay being public about it but i was just scared that second half i felt like the back line had my number. They knew everything I was going to do. I felt like I couldn't get anything right. I didn't want to get in a position to lose the ball again and concede another goal for my team. And ultimately, even though you're down, oh, and then the free kick comes. And our whole team was disorganized on that free kick. So a guy's in front of me who should have been marked. I, as I'm calling someone to pick that person up because I don't want to leave my zone, the free kick's taken. That first person wins a free open flick gets to the back post and I just feel like I'm on an island. Although that wasn't, I don't blame myself at all for that. I, I blame myself as part of a collective. I knew how it looked, right? I'm the closest guy I didn't market that person. And it just further compounded like the, the anxiety that I was feeling in that moment. So although we were down 2-0, it was, I came off and I, I almost felt relieved that I didn't, have another opportunity to embarrass myself. Uh, it was just a really hard moment that could have gone in so many different ways. And maybe 
I, I needed to have that moment too, right? Because what happens if I score a couple of goals in that MLS Cup final? What happens to my head? Does the stable foundation that my parents instilled in me as a child of working hard, being humble, does that all go away? Because I performed on the biggest scale. I still think to this day, it's the biggest game of soccer, club soccer we've had in this country. Where, like, where do I go from there? Can anyone knock me down? Or am I going to be knocked down at some more pivotal point in my career? So I, it, because of that, I mean, I spent a long time processing that game, but ultimately I've grown a lot. What the biggest thing I learned was just forwards said so much before it's have to have really short memories. Yeah. You make, I make one mistake. I have that giveaway. It doesn't matter because it's, there's 70 more minutes in the game and I'm going to get one chance and I'm going to put that chance away. And it, it was really reflective of certain games in 2019, where although there were a few games where I still got a little bit caught up in that young mentality, uh, there were other games where it was going poorly. I wasn't getting touches. Teams were bunkering down. But in the 94th minute, I would find a goal just because I kept work, kept working, kept running for that chance. So there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of moments that require growth, and I'm glad that as an individual, I had the capability to reflect honestly, critically, accept the really challenging emotions and the darkness that that might have sent me into, uh, but also ultimately finding a way to grow from that stronger and that's something that I'm trying to speed up as a process as I get older because you still get moments like that nowadays but can that moment of reflection go from a month which is what it was in, in 2018 to a week to a day because you know you got to play three days later that, that's the process and I, I appreciate you sharing that you know that open transparency and honesty People don't see that. People don't hear that. You know, there's so much more to the game of soccer and you got the mental aspect of it and not everything you see on TV. Definitely wanted to explain that, you know, there's formation uh, strategies that are played out. There's set piece zones that are played out. So it's like, Oh, how come that guy didn't get that guy? Well, you didn't know what my assignment was. So you're out here tweeting and hollering. You don't know what was really going on. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's important as athletes, you know, to understand, and, um, you know, you're a forward, so you don't have to go through this on a on a, on a a game basis. But a, a defender, you can play 89 minutes perfect. That one minute you messed up, you know, everyone remembers that. Usually That's, forward, you can be quiet for 89 minutes. You get a goal. <laughs> it's all good. You could be quiet. You could be shocking. Like, yeah. I'm talking, you can give away the ball every time you touch it. I'm not going to call any players out in the league, but, you know, you watch other forwards yeah. play. You, I'm not doing it, but you watch other forwards play because you want to see how they're finding success in the same league that you're playing in. And you're watching some of them. Some of them are obviously incredible, right? Some of them you stare at them and you're like, I'm never going to do what they're going to do, no matter how hard I work or how much I study. It's just, they got something I don't have. But you watch others and some of them might give the ball away every single time they touch the ball, every time. And you're like, how is this person in the position that they're in? And then- 80th minute goal, 90th minute tap in, whatever it might be, that team wins 2-0. Everyone's like man of the match. And I'm sitting here like, is it that simple? So I joke around. I'm like, how can I find more tap ins? How can I put myself in positions to be successful in that regard? Because it is an art and it is a skill that comes and goes, but you, you got to find it because it'll bail you out of so many challenging situations. I'm usually especially like 
at the beginning of my pro career, I was the guy who maybe was doing everything, you know, fighting with defenders all game, chasing balls in the channel, holding the ball up, et cetera. But I wasn't finding the goal as consistently as I would have liked. And it's like, is he really the guy, you know, is, is he the guy who can lead a team or is he just, you know, another one of the, those players that, you know, are okay, but are just going to be there to fill holes. Uh, that's a great point. I remember uh, Coach Thomas Rongan at the time to like some of our forwards for the youth national teams. He said, "I don't give a I don't give a crap what you do. You can smoke in the corner, but if you give me a goal every game, all right, your job is done." So, you know, just understanding your responsibilities within in, within the field, and then you know, obviously, you know, you talked about your growth since then. You guys won the uh, like we call, like to call the COVID Cup. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you broke you broke you broke your goal record in back to back seasons. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of amazing things. So let's, let's kind of change gears a little bit. You know, we're talking about the executive board for the Black Players Collective. Um, like I said earlier, you know, you're, you're a young guy, but a lot of people look up to you. You, you know, you're, you're wise beyond your years. So, you know, how did that all come about, you know, being on the executive board and, you know, forming the whole Black Players Collective? Yeah, just uh, Black Players for Change. Um, we came to that name really to capture the essence of what we were trying to do, inspire change in our league, in our communities, do it together. Because for so long, you know, we'd have, we've had so many conversations as well, right? You yeah. put me on the books, et cetera, but they've been so individualized, right? We've been going through this learning process on our own and trying to influence kids, communities on our own when we could have had this platform that could attract so much attention, so much infrastructure that we could disseminate in the way that we wanted to in a much more effective way than you know any individual might be able to. And that's what it's that's what it's all about. So it really started, you know, after the killing of George Floyd, you know, every black man in this country going through what we've gone through, black man, women going through that period of grief where it's like, not again, right? Like I'll know how you all felt or what you all did exactly when you got that notification, when you saw that video. But for me, I couldn't even watch it for, for the first however many days, I, I saw two minutes, if that, seconds even, and I knew where the story was going. I didn't need to stare at, you know, a man killing with impunity. Like, yeah. I, I did not need to watch that to know what happened. I We've seen it so many times. We've heard so many stories. I just went to a dark place, like, emotionally, because I knew that the battle lines would be drawn again. Now, I wasn't prepared for the battle lines to be drawn in a way that brought so much sympathy and empathy to what we've been seeing for so much time. It should never have been George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Arbery should never have been that, right? Mm -hmm. Every generation has one case that awakens them. And unfortunately in the age of, fortunately in the age of social media, you have everything in front of you all the time. Like in this age of rapid news, You've been seeing cases, you've been seeing Trayvon, like Trayvon Martin, you've been seeing, you know, Tamir Rice, Alton Sterling, you know, Sandra Bland, et cetera. So there's there's not really been an excuse, but with that, that frustration, that grief, you know, a group chat was started on Instagram with some of the black MLS players talking about the disappointment that the league hadn't taken a strong stance. You've been seeing watered down statements from so many different companies, but Ultimately, one of those companies had to be the first one to, to do it for the other ones to feel comfortable. 
and we were just waiting for MLS to say something. And that lack of activity that was felt by not only the players, but some of the employees too, brought us together, you know, started out venting at first. And then it was like, all right, we're about to go to Orlando, but none of us really want to go to Orlando in this kind of circumstance. And so we're like, how do we make Orlando worth it from a non-playing point of view? So we're like, okay, we got a platform. Are MLS going to give us the platform or are we going to have to take it? It doesn't matter. We're, we're going to do what we got to do. And that's what that group chat was about, which like figuring out logistics slowly, but surely it was like, oh, this person needs to be added. Not nah, this person needs to be added. So we maxed out on Instagram groups, move on to Zoom and Slack. And oh, I think we had- Don't know, give them the whole blueprint now. <laughs> no, I think we had like 70 to, 70 to over a hundred players on multiple Zoom calls in the span of days. And it was impressive to see how many people we're ready for the call. We're ready to act. And I'm not gonna talk about the debates on, on those calls because they, they were wide ranging, but they were, what, what we were certain of was that we didn't want it to be a one-time thing right before the first game in Orlando. We wanted to, it to be a sustainable group of players with a voice and with a mission to ultimately address systemic racism inequities within our sport and then within our MLS ecosystem. So it's been a year of growth, of filling holes, plugging gaps, announcing partnerships, planning for the future, but it's been, it's been really, it's been one of the only bright lights in 2020, because although the emotions were raw, were real from, you know, non-black members of society, you see today, not that many people are still having those honest conversations. Not that many people are still reading the how to be an anti-racist. And I, I mean, I, I'll have a conversation about that too. It's great that people were starting with those books, but that book isn't a check, like one check off your list, right? <laughs> like people read how to be an anti-racist and like, all right, bet I'm, I'm good. I know American, <laughs> American history. <laughs> I know American history. Like I know, I know what I need to do. It's like, no. That's like step one. That's the basics. I'm not going to read how to be anti-racist because I, I'm I'm beyond that. I'm trying to understand why the problems that are still going on, why they haven't been solved earlier, and what kind of coalitions and what kind of work had been done in the past to try and bring these to light. So you see just how the energy is a little bit different now. Wow. And that's what BPC is about, making sure that we at least have our group to drive the change as we can. Uh, that's what it's all about, man. And, you know, mad respect to you and, you know, everyone else involved. You know, we had Jalil on earlier, you know, Justin Murrow's, you know, a, a leader behind what you guys are doing. I think it's amazing to see, you know, once one person stands up and, you know, brings the group together, you know, you're much stronger as a fist than an open hand. And, you know, that's what you guys have been able to do. Um, and I just want to make a point that, you know, you've been doing this from rookie year. You know, you've been outspoken. You've been in the community. You've done your research. You've done your homework. And, you know, you ha you're an active presence. So it's not just a one-off situation. So I commend you for that. And, I, you know, I want to talk about, you know, Orlando. It's, it's, sorry, it's a challenge, too. Like, being, being a rookie, trying to be an activist on some of these issues, right? Talking about these issues on a consistent basis. Using your platform, whether it's on a podcast or Twitter or in person. People, although in Portland, you're going to have a more receptive audience, but 
sometimes people are talking behind the scenes they're like does he really need to have that conversation does he really need to like be bringing this stuff up like does he know who's around him does he know if they're supportive or not people are always trying to opine on on my life on my thoughts like i don't think it's always coming from the best interest i think it's coming this this business as usual like let's let's keep business right don't don't bring that down on me and I, I was I was a little nervous as a rookie, but I, I just felt I had to do it right. And my family was really supportive. They were like, you know, you might face some backlash, and I definitely feel it when I'm playing with the national team. But uh, it, it's what's got to be done. No nah, respect, and I remember it. I was like, yeah, this guy, hey, you got a lot of guts, young kid. When I remember when he was doing it, I was like, hey. Keep doing it. I, I would do it a little bit differently, but you know, so mad commendable for what you, what you what you got going on. So you know, talk about Orlando because I remember that very first ceremony that you guys did. You know, in honoring you know the people that were uh, brutally murdered. Uh, everyone's like, "When's the game going to start? When's the game going to start?" That's like that's not what this is about. You know, this is this is exactly you know. You see, guys, see how long see how long it took. You know, so talk about everyone coming together in that moment. And then obviously some of the things that you guys are doing now from the perspective of, you know, building courts in the communities, you know, making these partnerships, you know, giving back and all that. Yeah, I mean, the moment in Orlando was, it, it was emotional. I didn't expect it to be, but I'd actually been called the N-word on that field at Disney Showcase when I was 12 or 13. And at that, in that moment, I just felt so alone, like, I remember crying myself through a second half. Like it was the center back and then the holding mid there from South Carolina and they were having a field day knowing that it was getting in my head. And so full circle, you know, 10 years later, I'm on that same field saying, no, nah, this is my field. Like in this moment, like this is our field. Cause I know that I, that situation wasn't unique to me. So it, I don't know, life, life sometimes comes back around and that's what that moment felt like for me and showing the world that, you know, we were here, we were present, you know, understand that this was our moment. And to those people concerned about the game that was going to start, you know, a few minutes later, it, it wasn't really for them. Yeah. I think it, it captured a lot of people's attention, but we were able to leverage, you know, moments like that into building partnerships. You know, we started with the NBAP or started with, I can't even remember who we started with. It's been such a process and so much work that's gone into it, but partner with the NBPA uh, for, for, a lot of video content. We partnered with more than a vote as the election was getting underway, making sure that MLS players were registered, making sure that we were sharing that kind of energy with our fans, understanding that, yeah, you can be in the streets protesting. We appreciate that. But if that doesn't align with how you're voting, then it's all in vain. So creating a voting platform so that people could register to vote using uh, When We All Vote, another nonprofit. Uh, and motivating people through content with more than a vote was really important to us, making sure that we started with a government that, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but a government that would at least be open to some of the change that groups like ours would like to see in the end, right? It's not always going to be us asking for something from a federal government. That is a big, heavy lift, but we had to do our part to make sure that the groups that would be doing that on a consistent basis would have an ear that would give them a seat at the table. So that was really, really important. Uh, you touched on it a little bit with the courts. You know, that, that's going to be a big part of 2021. We've already announced 
in U-Court with U.S. Soccer Foundation and Musco Lighting in San Diego and in Hawthorne to go on with the court that we opened up in Newark. And without teasing too much, uh, there's going to be a, at least five, at least six to eight more courts coming in 2021, looking at board members leading those courts. So putting them in their home cities or cities that they have significant ties to, as well as strengthening our partnership with BWPC, Black Women's Players Collective, which is super important, right? Because we always know how Black women have been leading a lot of these movements, whether today or in the past civil rights movements and prior to. Uh, so they also will be taking the lead on several courts. And from there and where the ultimate focus will be on those courts is how can we make them impactful? How can we make sure that we're not just dropping into a community, planting a court and then leaving, you know, and never coming back, right? How do we connect them with the right nonprofit that's already doing good work, but maybe needs a space to add something different? How do we create opportunities with the different institutions around around the court. So for example, I went to Duke, right? We already talked about that. If and when a court makes it to Durham, how do I use my connection to Duke men's soccer? How do I use you know, someone else's connection to Duke women's soccer to invest in the court, to open up the doors of Duke to kids, right? There, obviously there's NC Central right next door. There's NC State around the corner in UNC, but the relationship between Duke and the community often feels as a student who is there feels very separated right and there's all sorts of stereotypes and negative perceptions that i was a part of as a duke student listened to sometimes perpetuated myself but having had a chance to step back from that and understand how that was harmful um, i just want to make sure that other people get that too so those courts are a big part of who we are. And you know, we're really excited about the partnership that we've built to get those courts in motion. You know, they they've obviously been infrastructure wise, they've been really aesthetically pleasing and uh, impact wise. We're just making sure that we live up to that as well. Uh, I'm excited to see what you guys do moving forward and the impact that you're gonna have for the communities and the kids. You know, you mentioned something about national team. Obviously, you're a national team, Olympic team. Um, talk about what it's like, you know obviously with what you're doing now, you know, playing for the national team, you guys got a young contingent of talent, you know, that's coming in together, almost like a melting pot of different, you know, cultures. You got, you know, African-Americans, black Americans, Europeans, dual citizens, you know, local talent, Latin, Latin, Latin community members too. So I'll talk about what it's like to play for the national team, especially in this, in this moment. It's, there's obviously pride. There's always pride when you play for a national team, but there's there's a lot going on, right? And you always question a little bit where you fit, how you fit into the national team, how you feel representing a country that maybe is not as a whole and throughout our history, proud of the black athlete. You obviously know that there's a lot of people who are extremely proud and supportive of racial equity, but sometimes the racial vulgar slurs thrown at you, you know, the trolling on social media, it gets to you, right? So you, you question a little bit where you, where you fit into that equation, but uh, ultimately bringing pride success to the program that you've invested a lot of time into, energy into, and 
you know, so many people from different walks of life have as well. That's what it's about. So if you have the opportunity to be in any type of roster, whether it's Olympic qualifying, Olympics, Gold Cup, ultimately World Cup, which is the dream for, you know, anyone who wants to represent a country or who feels like they're from somewhere, you, you just got to go out there and show out. No, that's what it's all about. And, you know, you have a bright future when it comes to that. And obviously with that comes more opportunities. So talk about some of your personal goals, you know, obviously going back to Portland, you know, you're established now, you're no longer a young player per se. Uh, you got a lot of years under your belt. What are some personal goals? I know there's rumors um, about you possibly going somewhere uh, across the pond um, that, that was on Twitter. Um, talk about some of these things that you can talk about um, and give us some insights. I can talk about whatever I want now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to be Switzerland. I ain't trying to get nobody in trouble. I appreciate that. No, I, I've been transparent about my goals as a child. Go back to when you were a kid. What, like, what was your dream? Your dream was to play in Champions League. Your dream was to play in World Cup. So, aren't you guys in Concacaf Champions League? <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. And that's why. I, that's why I had to stay. You know, make sure that we win that. Uh, but. Well, the if an opportunity presents itself to attain those childhood goals, anyone who says they wouldn't consider it is lying to themselves and lying to the people around them. So I'm not shying away from the fact that if a team's knocking on the door, I'm going to consider it like I would consider any other option. Being at my age, my experience level, some of the success that I've had, you just have to be transparent with the people around you, the people invested in you, and come to decisions in ways that is respectful of everyone involved in, in those in those situations. So my goal this year is I want to win CCL. That's obviously the elusive goal for, for an MLS team, right? Yeah. We've seen LAFC come so close. We've seen Toronto come so close. I thought both those teams, you, know, you can't hate on the winners, but I thought yeah. both those teams maybe could have won those games too, right? And, and I'm never rooting for LAFC, who we have a really tense almost rivalry with in the league. But when it comes to CCL and the final game between them and Tigres, you know, I, I, I want to see them be successful. But now it's our turn, right? We have us, Columbus, Atlanta, and Philly, I think it is. Yep. Um, very different teams across the league going in to represent against the, the fiercest of opponents in CONCACAF. You think you go to Honduras or you think you go to Panama and you expect these to be easy games. People on Twitter, they're like, yep, that's that's easy. Portland Timber is going to play Club America and that's going to be the game we care about. No, going to, going to play in Honduras, <laughs> again, that is that is difficult. Wow. Like, on many levels. It is, it is such a challenge, right? So I'm taking each game as an opportunity to try and show that the Timbers can be a powerhouse in this continent. Start with one game, hope that it goes well, hope they can take care of both legs, get to the next one, and it's just one game at a time. Hopefully that allows us to, with the depth in our squad, hopefully we're able to maintain good form because we've seen teams struggle to maintain good CCL form and good MLS form. We don't want to be one of those teams. I think we've built a roster that's able to compete on all fronts. So we want to get to MLS Cup. We had a really good regular season last year but we just we succumbed in the last 10 minutes of games too many times if we hadn't conceded the amount of goals we did the last 10 minutes of games we would have been in this in the hunt for supporter shield but 
RSL up 4-2, concede two goals in the 85th and 90th minute. LAFC concede a goal in the 94th minute. Seattle concede a goal in the 94th minute. It's a mentality thing that we need we need to fix this year. And if we do fix that, plus the additions that we got and the core group that we've had, then why not dream big? Why not dream for Supporter Shield, MLS Cup? If you start with those, then you can all you can work towards them. But if you say, yeah, let's just try to get to the playoffs, that's not that's not right. That's not who we are. That's not the culture we had. We won the Western Conference regular season when you were here in 2017. This team, this team, city, and fan base want wins, and that's that's my personal goal for the team. And uh, as an individual, I want to try to make the Olympic team uh, or any national team opportunities that are available, and you know, continue to assess if there's anything that 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 pops up over the future. No, I love that. And it sounds like you guys need like a veteran center mid, center back that could come in late <laughs> and you know, hold a lead the way you're explaining. But uh, all jokes aside, uh, offline, I just want you to know Portland Timbers fan Jeremy said uh, 13 goals. So let's hold him to it. Uh, I, I like I like you guys' chances with CCL because you guys do a great job when it comes to uh, one-off games. And it's like playoff games or, you know, tournament games. You guys did well. You know, in the playoffs, obviously making 2018, uh, you guys did well on the uh, COVID Cup. Uh, I don't know. What's the proper name? MLS is back tournament? Yeah. Uh, yeah the COVID Cup sounds better. Uh, <laughs> the COVID Cup. So you, when it comes to these tournament games, you know, Coach Gio and your, 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 your roster and your talent, you guys just are suited for it. So wishing you guys luck with that. Um, and then definitely wishing you luck in your future. Um, you know, I called you out for the Timbers fans, so they're going to be looking out for you. You guys have had some fire kits over the years. Which one is your favorite home kit uh, to date? Home or away, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I like the the red one, the red and black stripes. Oh, okay. it, was, it was different, but I miss it. Like, I didn't really appreciate it in the moment. We didn't play enough in that kit, but or at least for me, because I wasn't here in 2016. But I like that color scheme. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that one. 2017 away, red and black stripes. Perfect. And uh, you said you you, you said you mentioned you grew up watching Champions League and you know European soccer. Like, so who are some of your influences growing up as a player? Growing up with a French francophone background, um, I was watching the French national team a lot. My brother was in Paris when the national team won the World Cup in 1998, and he remembers that as just such a, a beautiful moment at such a young age. So I would say Zidane was the guy that I really watched a lot. And then more modern, Benzema. I, I remember just scavenging through YouTube clips, trying mm -hmm. to find every single goal Benzema scored from Lyon to Real Madrid, Champions League, La Liga, Copa del Rey. He He's just so fluid yeah. all over the field, consistently finding ways to get 20, 25, 30 goals a year doing it at Real Madrid for almost 10 years now. Every off season, there's a rumor, you know, they're gonna bring in X, they're gonna bring in Y, you know, but he's always there minding his own business and performing. So he, he was a major influence. And yeah, shooting big right. budget videos. Uh, all he <laughs> wants to do is score goals and shoot big budget videos. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about who's like the next European star that come to MLS. And I think Benzema is like a, underrated sleeper pick that could come out here in Miami and just live life and score goals. 
he would love life. I mean, he yeah. you see him in Miami in the off seasons, and <laughs> yeah, I think he would too. Okay. Speaking of, speaking of big stars, like before we move on, um, what are your thoughts on with with the way that, especially our national team is playing and stuff like that, but also with the way that the league is starting to gain a little bit more notoriety? What do you think it would take for the league to like for us to start? attracting some of these younger stars from over to Europe to come over to the US. Because they all mentioned that they want to play here. Would it be like would it be like blowing blowing the top off the salary cap or something like that or removing it all together? Like what what do you think it would be? I don't know. That I, I have all sorts of opinions on the college game, but MLS like <laughs> that that's a whole nother level of uh dynamics. I think you've seen South American stars want to come here in their prime especially these last couple of years, you're getting guys anywhere from 19 to 24 mm-hmm. taking a bet on this league and the teams that they're coming in, even Cincinnati, just pulling off a big time signing out of Brazil. Yep. So you're seeing that that market is resonating really well with MLS. What's it going to take for Europe? I don't know. They, there's definitely the stigma over there that MLS is a retirement league. I, I have conversations with guys on youth national teams who just say, yeah, you know, I'd rather play in any league close to me right now i'd rather play in the championship i'd rather be at the bottom of the championship than in mls and i'm like i understand people have personal preferences but why do you see them so far off each other that that's my challenge i'm just asking for a little bit more respect for the challenge of this league like they're not going to come in here and just walk tear it up i think you've seen the stars who have come in here at an old age think that they were just going to walk in the park really struggle and ultimately call it a day because they're like oh damn like, I like oh i actually gotta play <laughs> yeah so i i don't know I, th- I think money money talks for sure so yeah i would agree with that um i saw a video from lukaku like a couple years ago he was saying like the only thing holding mls back from attracting all of these young stars from europe is the money mm-hmm. like they, they got paid more removed salary cap restrictions all those weird rules that they have He's he said that there would be more young stars coming to the to the US because a lot of them like like to come here. They come here in the off season and all that other stuff. Like living here, I think is an attractive, um, attractive thing for them. No, I agree. Yo, summertime in LA, Vegas, Miami, (laughs) half of the population is European soccer players. Like so they love coming out here. They love the environment, they love the culture. You know, you see them, you know, on the Instagrams and media this American culture that they, that they're rocking. It's just, like you said, the money and like the restrictions and stuff like that, but hopefully that will soon change. And I know, I know L always brings this up, but like when it comes to, you know, MLS players, I don't know. I know you're kind of a, a, a low key sneaker head. Um, but for some of the guys that like, that have that swag, how come like we still quiet in that, in that standpoint, if that makes sense. I don't know. Like, first of all, you call me a sneaker head. Zarek is the ultimate sneaker. Yeah, you don't have to get him on the uh, podcast. He, he, he would send me, he would send me and Eric uh, messages like, yo, this shoe's on the site. Make sure you buy it. And I'm like, all right, fine. If he's telling me to, like, it's like that. But you look at this, you have to think about it. You just, <laughs> you got someone, yeah, you got someone doing it for you, which is big time. But I don't know. I, I, I think there's a, there's just different personalities, right? Where there, there's, there's yeah definitely something to be more looked at as to how we portray ourselves and how other athletes 
portray themselves. Maybe I, I think a lot of it has to do with money as well, right? When like when you have money, you have the ability to like attract crews to take care of you and and video you as you walk around and you know outfit you a certain type of way that's gonna look appealing on this like let me get as many likes as I can Instagram Twitter type of world. So I don't think people in MLS have that kind of infrastructure around them. At least the majority of players now. No, that's a great. Sure some people would do it for free though. Moby has people doing it for free for him. Yeah, but Moby's <laughs> a, frugal, a frugal athlete. OG, he knows he knows how to get those connects. Yeah, Not for what I will say, I was like, and I'll give props to Portland, you know, Kayla Knapp and, and company. Uh, when you guys, when we do the walkout for Portland it, up to the locker room, you guys do that street walk. You guys do do a good job, similar to like uh, league fits and stuff like that. And I do think a lot of MLS teams need to start doing that, showcasing the athletes outside of, you know, just the field, because not only do the fans want to see that, but other people in the league, like it shows like, all right, they got some personality to them. They got a good squad. So um, I think it's really important as the league grows and the players are getting more comfortable sharing their personalities. I know Bill uh, Bill has like a new outfit every game, uh, ladies, all them folks. So Bill has a new hairstyle every game. <laughs> but I think it's important to show that. But before we move on to the next topics, talk about some of the toughest defenders you face. You know, you mentioned Michael Parkhurst. I know, I mean, I'm not bullying you around in practice anymore, but uh, who are some tough defenders that you have to face? Man, funny story about you and me in practice. <laughs> We'd be playing small side and this guy would be marking me and be like, why are you scared of the ball? I'm like, I'm not scared of the ball. Like, just take your touches. Like, and this whole time, like this is in the run of play. And I'm like, am I, I'm actually start thinking like, am I scared of the ball? Like, do I not want to receive it? And by the time a ball's coming to me, I'm still processing our conversation. And he's just like coming around me. And I'm like, damn, like, so it's that mental battle. Like he got me, he got me, he got me hip to that mental battle early. Like, I was like, don't even listen to defenders. Like, you know, you know what you're here to do. Yeah. Um, no, but to be fair hey jeremy's a tank man he's hard to he's hard to move around once he gets you wrapped up <laughs> nah, so. that, um i think gonzalez perez was, was really tough to play against okay i think it'd be a different story nowadays like me having a little bit more experience but he just always had like that kind of that that little distraction when the ball wasn't quite there, that would take you off your game, that little shove, that little push. Not a lot of, I always tell young defenders, like, just push your striker, like yeah. push him. If he got rid of the ball, push him. If he, if he's running, like bump him as he's running, like these little things, strikers hate them. Like, yeah. You learn how to live with that kind of behavior, but you're never going to pick someone pushing you constantly in your ear, constantly like dragging you around when the ball's not even there. You're never going to pick that over, a tough defender who does everything the clean way um, mm -hmm. or the, the, you know, the, the way that you're taught to, to play, you know, without finding little ways around the rules. So uh, I'll, I'll give it to him for now. Okay. You got anyone else? GP. Huh? I'll do you one better. Any defender where you match up is like, Okay, mismatch. I'm about to score a goal today for sure. No, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> we're not doing that. We're not doing that. But uh, I will say I would hate to play against Lloris in a game. Like that yeah. that guy is the combination of agile, fast, like strong, like tactically aware. In training, sometimes he just grabs me and I can't move because like he's that yeah. Yeah. I always respect forwards who find a way to 
to get the better of him because there are it's very few and far between. No, that's great. Amobi, okay. what's with you getting bullied by forwards, man? Uh never that. No, I never Jim, that. Jim said he was beasting you too, man. What's up? Uh it's all jokes. They never beast me. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy's honest. You no, know, Jim's my cousin, so he likes to make the jokes, but he'll he'll tell you straight up. Uh, I, I like all to right. talk just to like keep keep it fun, you know, like basketball, football. We still need to bring that into soccer. Yeah. It's my job to bring that trash talk, like that fun to the sport. Man. I learned quick. I learned quick. <laughs> All right, I hear you. Uh-huh. All right, so let's get into our first game of the of the show. Um, two truths in the cap. So, Jeremy, I hope you have had some time to think. Um, this is a this is a show, this is a game that we play where Jeremy would tell us three facts about himself. Um, two of them will be true. One will be a lie, and Amobi and I have to guess what the lie is. So, I think Amobi got him a couple points under his belt. I think he had like. Two straight, two straight the last two shows. It's, it's six to four now. Okay. Yeah, I mean we we've, we've been through we've been through my whole life story, right? So you know I got all types of backgrounds. It could be uh, some abstract stuff, like it doesn't have to be about soccer. No, don't worry. Like we <laughs> <laughs> parents from the continent of Africa, born in France. Growing up in the U.S., you know, so my first one is I can represent three countries in formal competition, right? Okay. That's the first one. Just for L, who doesn't know me as well, my mom is from Madagascar. So just if that, I don't know if that influences anything, but, you you know, no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just being respectful, you know, leveling the playing field. You know, who, who knows? That might be a trick question. That might be a trick hint too. You okay. Know, never know. So, you know, us athletes, especially at a young age, we all action athletes. We play every sport. You play, you're talking about football, basketball. I fancy myself in basketball, swimming, mostly basketball and swimming. Took him, took him a while. So I had a D1 offer for swimming. You know, when you spend five five to seven times a week in the pool as a teenager it'll get you in shape but it'll also get eyes on you at a young age so that was that and then you know how it goes i already talked about my international background so keep this one short i'm fluent in three languages okay oh can we ask questions no. What was your, what was your uh, swimming thing? Was it freestyle, backstroke? No, dude. <laughs> oh, right. That's easy. What Breaststroke. Come on now. Breaststroke's the easiest. 50 breasts, 100 breasts. Um, and as I said, fluent in three languages, but, you know, damn. it's a lot of countries represented, too. I know they speak French, but if he was, like, like native, like, the tribal language, I'm going, no, you can play for France. I feel like with the the national team rules, isn't it the father's country? No, it could be mother's too. Okay. You throwing me off with that or what? No, I swear. <laughs> okay. No, he's not. He's not. <laughs> At least in this uh in, in our context. Um remember earlier he said something about European passport that is like combobulated. So that's what that's what's throwing me off right now. I don't know which one to do. I don't know. Maybe like you know when you're 16 
you got issue with minors. Like, I don't know if that has to do your passport or not. Uh, mm. damn, do that's I kind of a tough one because I know he wasn't good at basketball, but I do. What? Yo, come on now, come on now. Uh, I'm going. I was touching rim in eighth grade. You so. learned? Have you learned Spanish since you've been in Portland? I'm going three languages. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Actually, no, I changed. No, 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 no. You already answered. It's cool. Like I, I just like I just like to know what people think of me. Like it, it's 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 dope. That right. I couldn't change mine. So you yeah. Can't All right, I'm going languages, but I feel like I got that wrong. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, uh, national team. Shit, y'all both wrong. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Y'all both wrong. I had no D1 offer for swimming, but I could have. I I I really could have. That's why I I keep that unrealistic. I I spent up until eighth grade. I was in the pool like consistently all day. And I had to drop it in middle school, but people that I swam with were in Olympic qualifying, like top D1 schools. So that was, that was, who knows where I would have been if I kept going there. Um, I speak Spanish. I speak French. I speak English. I can represent France, or sorry, I can represent Cameroon, Madagascar, and U.S. Can't represent France. France had some, I don't know what kind of immigration laws they got, but they took away birthright. So I was born there and they said, you ain't got no French passport. And so every time people see he was born in France, they're like, yeah, he's French. And I'm like, I'm not. So get that out of your head. Okay. So that's why he hasn't gone overseas yet. So that, go, so that goes zero, zero or still six, yeah, four? Both got that. Still six, four. Yes, I were. And I was nice at basketball too. I was averaging like 10 points in middle school league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt bad. So it's like, I felt bad. the kids. <laughs> I was just, I was just out jumping them. Like I couldn't shoot, but I'll get rebounds, second chance opportunities. That's that was the game. That was the name of the game. You got to know what you're good at. Facts. Let them know. All right. So um, we already touched on the Black Players uh, for Change initiatives. So I'm gonna jump into um, Tyrion Reese officially leaving Montreal. So it was rumored before that he could be leaving um, to accept the job at Bournemouth. Um, while the latter hasn't been confirmed yet, um, today he posted on social media his goodbye letter um, to all the Montreal fans. So I'll read this off. He said, um, it's with a heavy heart that I'm writing this message. The last year has been an extremely difficult one for me personally. Due to the worldwide pandemic, I was unable to see my children. Unfortunately, due to the ongoing restrictions and the fact that we will be relocated to the U.S. again for several months at least, Um, will be no different. The separation is too big of a strain for me and the kids. Therefore, it is with much sadness that I must take take the decision to return to London and leave CF Montreal. I would like to thank the fans, players, and all the staff of this football club that have made me feel so welcome. I would also like to thank Kevin Gilmore, um, Olivier Renard, and of course, Joey and all the Saputo family for giving me this, this wonderful opportunity. We had an impossible year together, and to make the playoffs with this group of people is an experience that I will never forget. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being there on this journey, and I wish you all the success in the future. So family and upcoming playing conditions were cited as reasons for his departure. Um, but do you think it's because he had another job on the table and this is a way out, or did he peep like some of the writing on the wall? 
with, you know, like the rebrand and all this other stuff, not being able to play in Montreal for the season as a took took those as signs to dip out. That's a that's a tough one because I know the players and Matt, like them having to plan for potentially, if not def- definitively living outside of their market for extended periods of the year. Mm-hmm. I know I know they're all over the place mentally. Like they it's tough. Imagine just put yourself in that situation. You got a family. Sometimes you're coming into this country to play and in this market, right? Be with your family. You're convincing them to come on this new experience and then you got to leave them. Right. So yeah. I'll be curious to see what kind of situation they can get. They can get to accommodate for that. Cause I, I could see that being a valid reason for him. Right. And I just, I haven't seen much to the rumors in, in London, like, or in Bournemouth. I've obviously seen them, but I guess time will tell in a couple of days. I think both can be true at once as well, right? Like it was legitimate reasons to leave. And once you're elsewhere, you, you're not just, you don't, you're not going to pass on opportunities that present themselves and that make sense in your own personal situation. So I'm, I'm giving them both uh, validity and, and potential. Now, Moby, you had yeah. something to say on Twitter about this. What do you think? <laughs> Moby said, I'm <laughs> You never get mad when family's involved. So he he said family. Like so, first of all, I want to ask you guys: Do you think he wrote that letter, or he had like PR person write it? Um, I think some of the wording. I think he he may have wrote it. I think he wrote it. Okay, I just I just was interested and curious. Uh, nah, yeah, he's going to Birmingham. Give it like two weeks. Let the PR PR down down die down, and you know they'll make an announcement, but. You know, yeah, it is a strain. So I think it did expedite his decision. You know, if it was like up in the air and deciding like whether he wants to stick it out and then having this situation at hand, he's like, no, nah, let me just go to England. I'll be closer to home anyways um, and handle, you know, possibly some people will say a better job, you know, to coach a soccer team. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've seen the videos of him um, while he's coaching, like the coach cam videos of him. Like, it seems like he's, pretty frustrated at times you know so that along with when you're top top player he's gonna be frustrated coaching man city it doesn't matter i think it's just the emotion of being on the sideline right like we're frustrated in game with whatever we're doing people on the sideline are like feel part of the game like they yeah. they are invested <laughs> they're in they're in it in every step every pass so I think that's natural. You gonna you gonna be like that. I'm gonna be like that anywhere I go. Yeah, that's why it's I couldn't pure, be a coach. It's pure entertainment, though. <laughs> <laughs> I love why he's one of my favorite players. So I love watching it. Um, cool. So let's jump into another game we like to play here called No Card, Yellow Card, Red Card. So this is a rapid fire game um, that we play where I'll read off some news headlines, and you guys will give us your opinions or thoughts on that headline using the soccer card rating system. So no card is I agree with it um, or I'm cool with it. Yellow card is I can go either way. Red card is obviously I disagree or I'm not cool with that. Um, and also kind of give us a little explanation of why you gave it that rating. Uh, this, all, this, this also doesn't necessarily have to be about soccer as well. Uh, that's could, a good heads up. Yeah, it could be topics about anything. That's a good um, heads up. And to that point, the first one, no card, yellow card, red card. Twitter announces the rollout of super follows, which allows users to monetize exclusive content. 
Uh, I'll go yellow card. I mean, it. everything's monetizing these days and I feel like you have an authentic relationship or you have the potential to have authentic relationships without monetizing on Twitter, but it, it, it is what it is. I'm not, I'm not super in disagreement or for it, but the selfish side of things or the opportunistic side of things recognizes the potential value in it. I know most frugal athlete, but I'd be like, no card. Let me sign up. Let me get all, let me get all my athletes on this. Like, yeah, no card for me. I think it's a great opportunity for you know, specifically athletes to, you know, figure out another way to monetize. So whether it's, you know, post game thoughts with Jeremy, you know, you're gonna have to subscribe for that, you know, if you really want. <laughs> You know, and people pay for the athletic. How come they can't pay for me to talk about my thoughts on the game? So uh, right. from that standpoint, um, I think it is is cool. Um, obviously, hopefully they do like bundle packages because I don't want to pay for a subscription. I'll <laughs> go to Jeremy and then I go to mine and then go to his like or hers. So they got to figure that out. But at the same time, the opportunity to have that. Yeah, I think it's really cool that Twitter's offering it. I will say though, athletes need to be careful because you try to monetize that too soon before you have an authentic relationship with people that they know that they're going to get something raw or something real and worth it out of you. You're going to deplete the opportunity to even build a fan base to begin with, right? So, so don't take it, don't take advantage of a situation that you're not even in a position to do so just because you, you're hungry to get every dollar you can out of anything. Like sometimes there is value in just relationships and building a brand as far as it can go and then finding a way to monetize it when the time's right in a way that's not too exclusive but also takes care of you on the back end yeah for sure I better, better myself some people will try to subscribe just to kind of see what kind of spicy takes you're gonna have and then go back <laughs> and report that so gotta be aware of that as well um beware of the screenshot I'll put the legal disclaimer. <laughs> They're already doing it on Clubhouse. Um, next one, last one. Um, no car, yellow car, red card. The Mexican FA dismisses racism claims from Santos Laguna. So if you're not familiar with this story, um, a player for, from Santos Laguna was uh, racially abused during a game. And um, I guess the FA is dismissing those claims. So what are your thoughts on that? Missing those claims in which way? I mean, dismissing them, excuse me. Yeah. Did they, were they able to prove that proof or was it like, no, like sometimes you're not gonna be able to prove, but you know, like the people around, you know, if you did something like that, like, or are they saying, my thing, okay, I'll start with red, yellow to red card, but red card. Uh, my thing with that is there's different cultures, right? And people feel comfortable, way too comfortable imposing what they think their culture says about certain words or certain slurs on other people. In the heat of a game, you are not using a racial slur as a term of endearment, like I hear so many times. You are not calling your rival who you're getting in a fight with, whatever it is that you're calling him, because he's your buddy in your culture. You know, black people are called X, Y, and Z because they're your friend. So I have limited to no sympathy for people who come into situations and then say oh, i didn't know because i just used that for my friend <laughs> no that's you're not doing that in a game against a rival whoever it might be uh, i would be curious to see what was said and the the investigation but 
you got to root that shit out. <laughs> you got to root that that out. And you don't have to kick him out of the league forever, but dismissing something like that without sending a statement as well, if the person did what he uh, is alleged to have done, you're allowing that kind of behavior to fester and to grow. And there's all sorts of other issues as well with like some of the chants that, that go on and the homophobia um, in, in that league too. So, yeah. I'll, I'll read a quick snippet of what happened. So um, Santos Laguna's defender, Felix Torres was sent off late in the game for pushing a ball boy after reacting to the alleged abuse. Um, so Santos Laguna's president, Dante Elizalde claimed Bert, Bertram, I can't pronounce his name, claims this guy um, who had been substituted 11 minutes prior to Torres ascending off was a player that actually racially abused Torres. So there are no elements and no reliable evidence was provided to impose a sanction against the player. Um, Jermaine Bertrame, um, a league statement read, the disciplinary committee did fine his team um, 13000 for improper conduct um, by club employees for insulting a referee. So basically they're like, we can't prove that there's anything that happened. So we're going to dismiss it. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say everything's like, pardon the, the irony, but black and white, but mm. it, you gotta, it's gotta be, you gotta take it seriously. You gotta really look into it to make sure that you're, you're respecting the person on the on the receiving side of things because you don't want them taking matters into their own hands that that that's going to destroy the game and because you're scared to take action on racial abuse so i i understand there's processes but maybe the process needs to be looked at again because you know sometimes when you're around certain people and i can't speak to that person but when you're around certain people you know if they would do something like that you know if they would resort to that kind of name calling and slurring mm. nobs yeah i have a hard time you know someone coming out the woodworks and saying oh that guy just called me a racial slur just out of nowhere out of thin air so definitely the claims definitely need to be taken seriously and not just well we didn't see no one else said anything or we didn't get to see it you know we didn't the ref said he didn't hear it it's like no it has to be taken seriously uh, unfortunately, the article doesn't give too much information, so I'll probably just give it a yellow card. But, you know, I know Jeremy can speak to this. He's gone through this. I've gone through this, you know, in the very leagues that we played in. Um, and it's almost like, well, I, saw, I wasn't there, so I, I said it. I, I, this guy said it to me, and it's either I fight him or I, you know. So, you want to be, be trusted yeah. if that's you in that situation, so I have a hard time telling another yeah. one person like you're lying like i <laughs> i wouldn't want to be called a liar when i know exactly what i heard in those situations yeah. i'm not sitting here and with all the answers but it's gotta be taken seriously it's gotta be taken yeah. seriously and it's gotta be uh, found to fit what you are able to prove yeah so yeah so i'll give you a yellow card for sure cool Okay, so let, now let's get into this week's Black Soccer History. Um, so this week we'll be highlighting Lincoln Phillips. So Phillips is a Trinidad and Tobago former footballer and soccer coach. He was the first, he became the first black professional soccer coach in US history in 1968 when he became the player slash coach of the Washington Birds. 
and he coached Howard University for two undefeated to two undefeated seasons in, in NCAA championships. In his first season with the Bison, Phillips led Howard to the school's first ever NCAA Final Four in any sport. In 1971, he coached Howard to the 1971 NCAA Division I Championship in soccer, making Howard the first historically black college to win it. However, the NCAA stripped Howard of its title for player player eligibility violations. Phillips then led Howard to win the NCAA title again in 1974, a title which they retained. In both seasons, he became he was named Coach of the Year. After leaving Howard, Coach Phillips served in multiple coaching and administra- administrative roles across across Maryland and Virginia. He also served as the U.S. national team goalkeeper coach from '92 to '94, helping the squad qualify for the '94 World Cup. He then became a FIFA staff goalkeeper um, goalkeeper instructor from 1994 to 2005, conducting coaching development workshops for FIFA in the Caribbean and Asia. He left that position to become the technical director for Trinidad and Tobago Football Federation from 2005 to 2012, helping him qualify for the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Then he became the goalkeeper, goalkeeper coach for Loyola, Loyola University's women's team. So Coach Phillips is a fixture in American soccer, and we want to give him his flowers. So that's it. That's our Black soccer history for this week. Uh, respect and if you haven't checked out the spike lee short on you know howard's team uh definitely highly recommended um it's a great uh, short about the howard team and what they went through and coach lincoln phillips went through so yeah we know yeah i know i know a couple i don't know if they were on that those i think one of them was on that team but my ap world teacher in high school was uh played at howard and had some good memories from there and i believe he either was coached by lincoln phillips or had a relationship with him through the the interconnected community. So definitely uh, one of the greats, especially when you talk about legends, black legends in the sport and this country that hasn't necessarily always valued uh, black players moving on from playing positions. You know, that's someone that we all got to look up to and, and, and respect. So respect for bringing him up. For sure. Uh, I, and yo, shout out to HBCU soccer, you know, so hopefully um, we could bring that back. So yeah, you know what's funny is that they they took away that title for ineligible players that they were recruiting. But you, you know who picked up that model real quick after them? All, <laughs> all the all the non HBCUs were going to every country that they could to recruit. You know, so, you know the the Caribbean, Jamaica, Trinidad. Like they just mad that they were ahead of the curve. Right, <laughs> uh, but um. That's our show for this week, Jeremy. Yo, thank you so much for taking the time to get on. I know you guys have just started preseason. Uh, I know you got a lot of things on your plate. Uh, but for the people that want to connect with you, you know, support what you got going on, you know, where can they find you? Find me on Twitter, Instagram, at King Jebo, King, J-E-B-O. And follow Black Players for Change on social. So that's BPC MLS on both Twitter and Instagram. We got some real exciting coming up uh, in the next day probably won't be out by the time this podcast is out but yeah just keep staying touching and keep tuned no respect and thank you so much again once again uh, make sure you guys support you know black players for change uh, jeremy you know what he's got going on and then obviously on the field too so he did say he got 13 goals in him i know he got a cool celebration coming on um but yeah that's it so uh subscribe rate and review it helps us get discovered follow us on all the socials at two cents fc 
Check out our merch at two centsports.shop. L's rocking the hat right now. Um, it helps support the show. You know, as if you want us to continue getting wonderful guests on the show, um, get your merch, support the crew. You know what we got going on. And then tweet us your comments on the show or any topics you want me or L to discuss. Uh, the only podcast, the only show um, where you're getting unfiltered thoughts and opinions on a weekly basis. So with that being said, hope you guys enjoyed and we'll catch you guys later. Peace out.